uh, usually when I uh, address a crowd in Indianapolis, uh, I remind them that yes, it's true, I'm from California. It's been, uh, it's been great being out in Indianapolis and Indiana, just seeing all the green, you know? Uh, I've pa- I, uh, my GPS has taken me through some fields that I thought I was lost or something. Cornfields, I think I've seen soy, is that soy? Beautiful green, because you know in California we're one big desert. And uh, sometimes people, I wonder if they think, you know, this guy's from California, and uh, I just want you to know, I've been tested twice, and so far I'm totally free of imbecility. Uh, If you know anything about California, it's one big loony bin out there. But so far, I've not been tainted. And uh, I'm here because I am the president of ICOM this year, and I'm pretty excited about our theme and where we're going. My text with you is Genesis 1 through Revelation 21. We're going to look at the big picture just for a few moments, the cross before me. I was with a good friend of mine, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, and I don't know how many of you know him. Uh, He and I uh, were close, and we lost one of the greatest minds of our time this year. And we were doing a conference together in Sri Lanka. So we'd met in New Delhi, then flown over to Sri Lanka to do a pastor's conference together. I actually got to hear Dr. Zacharias' last sermon uh, before he was diagnosed with cancer, and then we lost him in March. But he started his sermon uh, with a, a fantastic story. I love Indian humor. I love New Delhi humor. It's just, it's different, but you have to really track. And I've noticed the older you are, because you're smarter, you usually get these jokes. You have to live life a little while. So this one uh, young Indian man, he's with his uh, friend during a work break, and they're both kind of bored. So one says to the other, I know, we're bored, let's play a game. And his friend says, okay, what game? He says, well, I'll ask myself a question, and if I can answer it, you have to give me $5. And his friend thinks, well, of course you're going to know the answer to your own question. He goes, no, no, wait. I'll ask myself a question. If I can answer it, you give me $5. But then you get to ask yourself a question, and if you can answer your question, I'll give you $50. So the guy thinks, well, I'm, I'm, I'm up 45 bucks, so sure, let's go. And since you started the game or since you came up with the idea, why don't you start? He says, okay, I'll start. Here's my question. My question is, how can a rabbit burrow, dig a hole in the ground without leaving the dirt on the outside? How can a rabbit dig a hole in the ground without leaving the dirt on the outside? And my answer is by starting from the inside. And his friend says to him, well, how can you do that? And he says, I don't know, that's your question. Okay, some of, you, some of you are tracking. That's always a good, good sign. You know, I've spent most of my life traveling around to universities, doing some events with Ravi, and uh, even in New Zealand especially, I had a program called Questions of Life uh, where we would address the deeper, more penetrating questions of living. And I've spent most of my life asking or answering questions, but after we uh, had our time together in Sri Lanka, I went back to New Delhi, and Dr. Ajay Law knew I was a big fan of golf, and he said, look, would you like to play around the golf at the oldest golf club in New Delhi? It's the oldest golf club in India. I said, sure. And I show up at this private club, and they pair me with this other golfer who's a member of the club. You can't play without a member. And it turns out, after about the second hole of golf, I learned that he is actually a Hindu philosopher. He teaches Hinduism and Hindu philosophy at the University of New Delhi. And I think this is fantastic because I've sat across the table from uh, Buddhist monks. Uh, There's one thing about reading about other religions, but when you're seated across the table and you can engage in conversation, you're going to learn more in that time than anything you've ever read in a book. And so here's another opportunity for me. And when you're a golfer, you know, if if you go to a different part of the world 
and you're a Christ follower and you meet another Christ follower, there's barriers that are broken instantly, right? Somehow you have something in common. You may not know everything about each other, but there's a commonality. Golfers are the same way. You meet a golfer from another part of the world, it doesn't matter, man. Instantly, you both know that you're trying to defeat a game that you will never, ever defeat. And so you've got this common battle in life. So after about 18 holes of golf and uh, an hour of lunch, he dropped his guard. And so I asked him, I said, look, I, I spend my life answering questions of university students or of, of uh, church leaders. Can I ask you a question? He said yes, and I asked him. I said, what is the greatest concern you have about the Hindu millennial? And you know what he said? He said, I guess my greatest concern about the Hindu millennial is that they might convert to Christianity. And I said, well, are they? He said, yes. And then he said, he said, I think there is an attraction to Christianity because it's so coherent in its address of the four major issues of origin, meaning, morality, destiny. Now, you know what he means by that? He means that any worldview must answer the four issues of origin, where did I come from, meaning, what's the meaning of my life, morality, where do, do, is there an objective point of reference for morality to go beyond the subjective feeling of moral law, and then ultimately destiny. And if a worldview is not consistent in all four, then it's thrown out. Now the problem with this is in India, Hinduism by its very nature is pantheistic, which means that God is all and all is God, and contradictions are not really a problem. But suddenly, this new generation of millennials in India see coherency as an attractive thing. And then he said, especially in light of the Christians have an objective point of reference in the past to give them full confidence of a resurrection in the future. So what's he talking about? All other religions point to theory. Christianity points to an actual historical event in the resurrecting from the dead of Jesus Christ. And he said, the problem with new Indians, now look, let me just say something. You cannot describe any world religion in a few seconds. That's impossible. So for those of you who study world religions, I want you to know I'm aware of that. But I'm also aware that in India, there is this coming to Christianity, or at least seriously investigating it. And he told me the reason why is because now young Indians have access to the web. And because the worldwide internet, they're listening to other faith systems, other worldviews, and they're looking at the coherency of Christ, and it's attractive to them. And I thought, my, how interesting. In America, we're concerned about the millennial walking away from Jesus. In India, they're concerned about the millennial walking to Jesus. I don't know if you know this now, but there are 177,000 Christians in Israel. In Israel. In a recent report, in cooperation with the Jerusalem Post and the Barna Research Group, one-fifth of all Jewish millennials believe Jesus is the Son of God. 80% identify themselves as religious Jews, 20% believe that Jesus is God in human flesh. Now, remember, anytime something rises to a level of 10% in a given generation, we call that an epidemic. So there is an epidemic of 20%, an epidemic of young Jewish millennials turning to Jesus. There's a philosopher that I often follow, not because I agree with him, but because I think he has a good hold on American culture, Ari Kelman from Stanford University. And this is what he said. When he read this survey, he said, these don't look like Jews I recognize. Maybe these are Jews we have never seen before. Again, I was with Dr. Zacharias last November before the Sri Lanka conference, and Ravi travels all around the world. 
And I said, Ravi, you know, you go into places that none of us will be able to get into. Uh, you've been to Harvard and Oxford. Tell me something. This prognosis that Christianity is dying, is it true? He said, not for a minute. Now listen carefully to what he said. Christianity is booming in the world. It is still the fastest growing religion. God and Christ and the church are alive and booming around the world. There are 80 million Christians now in Russia. There are 100 million now in China. He says it's booming. It's just that the center of Christianity has shifted. Now, what does he mean by that? Andrew Walls, who's a respected historian concerning world religion, he says that the beginning place of every other world religion, wherever the religion started, that place continues to be its center today. So you have Islam, the center is still Mecca or Arabia. You have Hinduism, which uh, Hinduism is predominantly still an Indian religion, primarily in India. Uh, Buddhism, you'd expect to go to a place like, it's an Eastern religion like Thailand. But he said Christianity is different. The center of Christianity is always shifting. From Jerusalem to the Hellenistic Gentiles, from the Hellenistic Mediterranean to Alexandria to North Africa to Rome, then to the Northern Europeans, the Franks, the Anglo-Saxons, the Celts, all of Europe and beyond. But then last century, do you know, for the first time since Jesus established his kingdom on this earth, for the first time in human history since that time, Christianity has shifted away from Europe, North America, and is flourishing in Latin America, Asia, Africa, so that in the past decade, we turned a corner. There are now more Christians in the Southern Hemisphere than there are anywhere other place. Imagine that, that the center, Christianity's booming, but the center has shifted. Andrew Walls, when he was asked the question why, he said this, he said, you might say there's a certain vulnerability of the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I couldn't understand what he meant by that for a long time until I read Dr. Tim Keller's book, King's Cross. And Keller, in King's Cross, comments on Wall's response. And this is what he says. He says, the heart of the gospel is the cross, and the cross is about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. And then he says, when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for a long period, the radical message of sin and grace and the cross can become muted or even lost and then Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good, and eventually it becomes dormant in places, and the center moves somewhere else. Now, you know what he's saying, right? He's saying basically this, affluence always snuffs out Christianity. Now, who are the affluent? You. Me. Affluence is when you don't have to worry about where your next meal's coming from. It's when you don't have to worry about having a roof over your head. It's when your car has a better home than two-thirds of the rest of the world. It's called a garage. We're the affluent. And Walls, Keller, Dr. Zacharias, affluence, where affluence occurs, Christianity seems to recede and move and shift its center to other places. Now, still, there's the question why. Let's, let's talk about this just for a moment. After the genocide in Rwanda in 1994, how many of you know what I'm talking about? The genocide in Rwanda in 1994, so you have over a million Tutsis slaughtered by the Hutu tribe in a period of 90 days. You would just basically, when the word was given, 
over the radio, kill the cockroaches. Cockroaches, that's what they referred to. Uh, the Hootsies, they referred to them as cockroaches. You would walk into your shed, grab a machete, walk across the street and slash your neighbor to death and his children. A million in 90 days. I was part of a group. We went into the prisons to preach the message of reconciliation. So Kagami, the president of Rwanda, wasn't even a Christian. But he had been to Oxford. He knew philosophy and he knew religion. And he decided the only way that his country could be healed is through the message of the gospel. He had taken a cue from Nelson Mandela and the Reconciliation Commission, who also thought it was the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the only message that could restore South Africa. And so Kagame invited pastors to come in and preach the message of the gospel, believing that you cannot be right with each other until you're right with God. And so we preached the message of the gospel. On my sixth trip to Rwanda, I'd been traveling. There was a translator that followed me around into the prisons. His name was Anastas Sabamunga. And these prisons were crowded. You would have 12,000 prisoners, 11,500 prisoners in a prison built for 4,000 people. The stench when they opened up the gate was almost unbearable. And Anastas met me after I'd been traveling for 48 hours. You go to Los Angeles, Atlanta, you go to London, then you go down to Nairobi, Nairobi to Burundi, Burundi to Kigali. And I'd been traveling for 48 hours. And as soon as I cleared customs, he was waiting on the other side, he gives me that big bear hug. He said, Pastor Jeff, a great opportunity has just opened up to us. Because I had met Kagami previously. He's also a golfer, by the way. Kagami has given us permission to go in to the prison on the border of the Congo where those who orchestrated the genocide reside. So this isn't just the ones who carried it out. These are the orchestrators of this genocide. So he sa I said, great, let me have a night's sleep, and we'll go up. He said, nope, don't have time for that, got to go now. So they call Rwanda the land of a thousand hills, and they're not kidding. It's up and down and up and down. And so we, we make it about two-thirds of the way there, and then we're going to stay in this hotel. I use that term lightly. <laughs> We're in this resting place. Then we're going to, as soon as sun up, we're there at the gates. About 5.30 in the morning, I was awakened. I walked over to the window because it was open-air hotel. And there were about 250 people kneeling on the ground praying. And I said, Anastas, what's going on? He goes, well, these are Christians. This is what Christians do in Rwanda. We get up every morning and we pray and worship at sunrise to welcome in the new day. Now remember, these are people who live hand to mouth. They have nothing. They don't know if they're going to make it another day. They don't know if they're going to have enough food for that day, and this is how they live. Now, Anastas and I had built a friendship which had given him the right to say what he's going to say to me next because I said, look at that. I have everything, and I don't do that. He goes, don't worry, Pastor Jeff. You can't help it. You're an American. You're distracted by affluence. He said, you, you prayed that God would bless your nation, and he did, and then those things became your gods. So your places of worship are your houses and cars and vacations and your restaurants. But in Rwanda, all we have is Jesus. And I immediately thought of the old Swindoll phrase, you'll never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. The point I'm making is this is the type of Christianity that I'm seeing in other parts of the world as I travel in India, in China, in parts of Asia, in Africa, in South America. They understand that to be a Christ follower means that you adapt the motto of the cross. That is, if you are truly going to live, you have to die to yourself. I sat down with Ajay Law in 2016 when I was the vice president of the North American. I said, look, I want to talk about your story. 
And he said, here's our story. Our pastors are trying to take the gospel up into the hostile territories in northern India and the countries that border her. And they are being torched, beaten with iron rods, dipped in hydrochloric acid, raped and tortured. And I said, well, how can we pray? And he sends me back this message that says this, don't pray that the persecution will end. Pray that we will be brave and courageous enough to endure it. This is how the kingdom grows. In my travels throughout the world, I have noticed there's a great difference between how an American responds to pain and suffering and how places where Christianity is exploding respond to pain and suffering. In America, when something bad happens, we say, why has God abandoned us? But in Africa, in places where the gospel is exploding, they say, how is God going to use this to build his kingdom here on the earth? How many of you, when you heard of COVID-19, immediately said, what's going on? We're fighting. We're scared. God's abandoned us. Not so in other places. Somehow in America, we have linked affluence with our righteousness. We think we're good, and that's why God has given us so much. The cross is radical, folks. It's radical. Remember what Keller said? He says Christianity starts to transmute into a nice, safe religion, one that's for respectable people who try to be good and eventually becomes virtually dormant in those places and the center moves somewhere else. What's he saying? The greatest enemy to the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of moralism. It's whereby you think you're good and therefore you deserve to be saved. But Jesus himself said, you show me someone who has been forgiven much and I'll show you someone who loves much. And there's something about us in our culture, we just think we're not that bad. Jesus, thank you for dying for us, we'll see you at the apocalypse. But I don't really need that much forgiveness. We may not say it, but down deep inside we think we're basically pretty good people. And because of that, our desperation to need the cross is gone and our love wanes and fades and we start worshiping other idols and we expect to get what only Jesus can give us from those things. The problem is love. It is. It's love. And that's what you see in places where Jesus is all you have. And then the gospel booms. As a pastor, I can tell you what we struggle with the most. We struggle, first of all, with our own sense of duplicity. We want to be better than we are. We do. And then we struggle with the idea of how can we preach in such a way that the people in our congregations would develop this radical Christianity, this passion where they would do and pursue other things, but primarily their life would be about the kingdom of God. How can we do it? And you know what? When you're young, you try to use guilt. <laughs> it's a powerful tool. I try to guilt you in. I tried this for years in preaching. You don't know that you're doing it, but we hope to make you feel bad enough to make a change, but that will never work. It will never work. It may work for a couple of weeks, but it will fade. You know who knows this better than anybody? God. The theme of ICOM is the cross before me, and here's what I've learned in my life. The cross is brilliant in the mind of God. It doesn't just answer the question of atonement. That's a pretty big question, but it answers every question. Think about it. In the Bible, you have four words for love. We know most of them. Agapao, unconditional love. Uh, eros, which is a romantic type love. Uh, phileo, which is a friendship type love. And then you've got storge. Storge and agapo, or uh, uh, agapao or agape, are, are closely related. Most of us know that we can't 
We love agape, don't we? But most of us know we're incapable of it. Our love for someone else is usually contingent on something else. It's not unconditional. We want it to be, but it's hard. Storge, on the other hand, we can do. Storge is the love a parent has for a child. How many of you know some mom or dad that would die for their kid? We got it, don't we? So if God wants to communicate to humanity in a language we can understand the depth, the width, the height of his love for us, what would be the best way to do that? What is the strongest love in humanity? It's the love a parent has for a child. It's even stronger than erotic love for romantic love. I mean, a husband and a wife are in a situation. Sometimes the wife says, well, he's lived long enough. Maybe he needs to go. But not a kid. Not a kid, man. A child, you'll do whatever you have to do. And so God gives up what is most precious to him so that he will not lose us. And that is the core of what the gospel is. And that's supposed to catalyze a love in us because we realize what the God of the universe did. But it goes beyond that. Stay with me. I'm going to run out of time here, so I've got to move fast. Not only the love of God, and you say, why are you, why are you taking this angle? Because it dawned on me about 10 years ago. My job as a preacher is not to condemn or make you feel guilty. My job is to keep giving you Jesus every week until you fall in love. Because when you fall in love, all those other things will be byproducts. I won't have to talk to you about generosity. I won't have to talk to you about sacrifice. I won't have to talk to you about tithing or giving. You will automatically do it because you're in love. That's my job. So in the 10 minutes, 9 minutes, 5 seconds I have left, <laughs> let me tell you, it's not only the cross, but as I've traveled around to these universes, especially in young, sharp minds, people talk a lot about the millennials in America. Stop doing that. These guys are great. Because, man, when they, get, when they get a hold of something, they do it full force. It's our fault because we raised them, Right? We've got to show, somehow we've got to go back and communicate to them that there is, there is something that they can grab hold on to they'll never have to let go of. And when you present the depth, the width, the height of the cross, it's amazing. Three questions. Here are the three questions of life. Everywhere I go, people ask these questions. Number one, Pastor Jeff, can somebody give me a satisfactory explanation for pain and suffering in my life? Number two, can somebody give me some kind of objective hope? Don't just tell me that I may be reincarnated or that pain is an illusion or I may reach nirvana. Can somebody give me something objectively true that I can bank on when I die that I'm going to be in heaven? And third, can somebody show us some power that can come from the outside in to change us? Because change doesn't happen from the top down. It happens from the inside out. Now, I want to tell you, it's not, it's not that Jesus gives a satisfactory answer. It's only Jesus gives an answer that makes any sense. Think about it. Let's, let's take the first one, pain and suffering. If you live life long enough, you're going to suffer. You're going to have things happen to you. It's just the way that it is. It's the world. It's a fallen world. Buddha will tell you that your pain is an illusion. Illusion. Have you ever just wanted to take a Buddhist out behind the woodshed and smack them around a little bit and say, how did that illusion feel? <laughs> or a Hindu will tell you it's a matter of reincarnation. Now, again, remember what I said. You can never explain a religion just in one line. And I, that's a little humorous, but it goes much deeper than that. And I know that. Hinduism, reincarnation. You're reincarnated enough until you get it right. What does that, what does that prove? What does it say? And how will that sustain me in the here and now? But here's what Jesus says. And it starts from Genesis 21 and ends in Revelation 21 and then the great city in 22. The book of Job is considered by scholars to be the oldest book in the Bible. Did you know that? What is Job's 
accusation against God. He says, God, if you will just tell me why this is happening, I'll be able to endure it. For 37 chapters. God, if you just tell me, you tell me why, then I'll be able to endure the what. And God puts up with this for 37 chapters. Then God shows up, and here's basically what God says to Job. He says, Job, let me get this straight. If I tell you why all this is happening, you'll be able to readily accept it, right? And Job goes, yeah. And God goes, really? And then there is a series of 64 questions. Where were you when I made the foundations of the world? Have you been to the depths of the ocean? Job, there are animals you've not even discovered yet. Have you been to the constellations? You don't know how vast and how wide it is up there, Job. And I thought, for a long time, what is the point? Well, the point is this, Job, there's a thousand things that happen every day in your life for which you do not have an exhaustive understanding that you readily accept. (laughs) You don't even, he uses this line, you don't even know how a doe gives birth to a fawn in the wilderness. That it happens, you know, but how it happens intricately, you got no idea. Science understands about two ounces of this universe. There's so much more that's not in the purview of science. And what does Job do? Job says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. And anybody who has suffered, who has a relationship with Jesus, knows that you really don't get to know the God of the universe until you're in pain. You don't really know Jesus in an intimate way until you suffer and he walks you through it. An atheist in Australia once said, well, Pastor Jeff, you've not answered the question any better than any other philosophy has. And I said, oh, wait, not done. We'll never have an exhaustive understanding because we're not God. But what we are promised is a prevailing presence where we're not expected to go through these things alone. But the power of God and Jesus is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me walks us through it. And then only Jesus takes a disadvantage, turns it into advantage and uses it for the glory of God. So that we know that our suffering is not in vain. Even COVID-19, what is God doing? We can't know for sure, can we? But we can suspect a little, can't we? Do you think it's time for us? Think about it. What has COVID attacked? Our money, our health, our liberty, or since the travel. Those are the gods of America. And sometimes God has to strip away the lesser gods and the lesser loves so that you will see the ultimate God and the ultimate love. He gives us a prevailing, you know, one of my favorite illustrations of John Polkinghorne taught uh, quantum theory at the University of Cambridge. So he's not lacking intellectually. He says, if you understand the relationship between the expansion and contraction of the universe in the early picoseconds, a picosecond is something that is traveling the speed of light, the time it takes to cross a hair's breadth, so it's moving pretty good. If you understand the relationship between the expansion and contraction in the early picoseconds of the universe, it would be like taking a bow and arrow and firing it 20 billion light years away on the other side of the universe and hitting the bullseye every time. The precision required to have what we have. He said, here's what I determined in my own life. If God can bring beauty and pattern and design out of the chaos of the early picoseconds of the universe, that same God can bring beauty, pattern, and design out of the chaos of my life. But you think about that second question. We talked about prevailing presence, but who can transform us? 
Only Jesus gives an objective proof of future hope. You know, I was doing a radio show on Newstalk ZB one time, and, and the, this is a national radio station in New Zealand. And for three hours, a good friend of mine, Steve Kumar, and I, he's a Malaysian apologist, we were on air taking questions of New, all New Zealand. This wasn't Christian radio. This was the national radio station. And people called in. One lady called in and said, Jeff, I like you. I like how passionate you are, but... Let's just put it right down to where it really is. You have no objective proof whatsoever that there's life after death. And for some reason, I started thinking about 1 Corinthians 15. And you know, the Apostle Paul faced that same kind of issue. And you remember what he said? You remember the example he used? He, he, he pulled in the environmental sciences. And he basically says this. He says, you explain to me how an apple seed, let's use the apple. How can an apple seed go down into the ground, die, decompose, and then suddenly spring forth into life and beautiful apple tree. You see what he's saying? He said, we know that you put the seed in the ground, it dies, it decomposes, and springs forth light, but we don't know how. We just know it works. And he said, the body that shall be, the apple tree, is far more glorious than the body that was. And he says, so too shall you be in the resurrection. It's almost like God gave us just a little bit of an environmental example of how resurrection is possible. And then because we can point to an historical event in the past as the ultimate point of reference, then we can know because Jesus was raised from the dead, which is the most important question to answer for the millennial generation, because we know he has risen from the dead, we too have life after death. Remember, you've heard the story so many times. All the other world leaders died, and their tomb is still filled. But the tomb of Jesus is empty. You know, are, are you guys Colts fans in this part of the country? Are you Colts fans? How does this help pragmatically? How, do I, how can I work this out in my life? If, if somehow you could get in a time machine and go forward... And you, let's say the Colts, by some miraculous divine intervention, were in the Super Bowl. And somehow you were able to get in a time machine and go forward, and you knew the Colts win. And then you come back, and now you're going to watch the Super Bowl with your friends. Maybe the Colts are playing, I don't know, the Cowboys, or who do, who do, who do the Colts despise? Whoever the Colts despise, that's who they're playing. Okay. But you know they win. Is it not true that you will experience the game incredibly differently from your friends? Because you know the outcome, right? So when there's a fumble, you're like, oh, it's a fumble, it's a game, it's all over now. Because you know, no, they win in the end. There's an interception, there's a, there's a pick six. Maybe there's two or three of them. You're thinking, man, this is it. We're, we're, we're toast now. The momentum shifted the other way. There's major penalties. Your friends are going to be panicking, Right? But not you. Why? Because you know the end of the story. This is what only Jesus gives. You know how it turns out unless your faith is weak and your faith is weak because your love is weak and your love is weak because you don't know Jesus. When you know him, your faith is strong, your love is strong, your confidence is strong. And so we preach Jesus and the cross. The cross goes before us. And then finally, and I'll cut this short. I'm, I'm in red numbers here. Two minutes. Two minutes. Only Jesus gives a satisfactory answer for cause and effect to authentic transformation. Now, here's what we mean by that. The world is looking. How can we change? Look around us. What's happening? You've got riots. You've got all over the world. You've got people panicking. There's evil in the world. It's been, I think it's been dormant for a while, but COVID has brought out the real person inside 
And that's what we're seeing demonstrated. There is evil in the world. What hope do we have, folks? Really, what hope do we have? Let me tell you. Jesus and the message of the cross is the only hope this country has. There is no other hope. Because only Jesus can transform you from the inside out. Did you see Wrath of Khan, Star Trek? Remember when the big Genesis torpedo went into the planet and it shot into this planet that was dead and lifeless, then it came alive. You know the Bible says, in effect, that's what happens to us. God penetrates us with his spirit. It uses those words. And the spirit of God comes inside us, not only to change what we do, but what we want to do. Our passions change. The Puritans called the Holy Spirit the expulsive power of a new affection. So he not only changes what I do, but what I want to do. This is the only hope for our nation. When my last meeting with Ravi was in, uh, as I said, Sri Lanka, we were up on the seventh floor in one of these little coffee rooms. And I'd heard this story before. I'll close with that. And Ravi uh, said, look, I want to tell you what happened here. You've heard it maybe in other places, but let me tell you, Jeff. He was invited to Jerusalem to speak with 18 other people to the founder of Hamas. So we're talking about suicide bombs. We're talking about aggression. We're talking about hate. And somehow he was invited. There were 18 others invited to have a meal with him. And they were given clear instructions. You can ask Sheikh Halal was his name. You can ask him one question, but you cannot rebut the answer. So you can ask him a question. He'll give you the answer, but you can't, you can't debate him. And so when it came to Ravi's turn, Ravi said, Jeff, I asked him a simple question. I said, tell me what you think about suicide bombers. And Ravi said, I did not like his answer. It was just filled with hate. And this is the way our world is going. And he said, I thought I would never get to speak with him again, but it just so happened through the power of the Spirit that God ordained this moment where when we were leaving the palace and we were in Jerusalem, we were leaving, somehow I got placed right beside Sheikh Dalal. And so I just took a chance and I said, Sheikh, and if you know anything about Ravi, he's so kind and gentle. He said, Sheikh, do you mind if I point something out to you? And Sheikh Halal said, sure, go ahead. Ravi said, I, I'm concerned about your answer that you gave. Peace will never occur in this world as long as we keep, keep killing each other and hatred. And he said, we walked out. And he said, Jeff, this came from God because I, I hadn't planned it. He said, I looked over and I recognized that's the mountain where Abraham was, was said to have taken Isaac. And he said, I looked over and it's a clear day. And I said, Sheikh, do you remember the story? Abraham takes his son up to the top of the mountain. You say it's Ishmael. We say it's Isaac for this argument right now. That doesn't matter. The point is Abraham took a son on the mountain and he was about to bring the knife down. And just before he got the knife in his hand, just before he was to bring it down rather, the angel of the Lord stopped him. There was a ram caught in the thicket, and the voice, the Lord will provide the lamb. Sheikh said, yeah, I know that story well. It's a good story, because he would have it in his history as well. And then he shifted gears, and he said, there's another hill just over there. And on that hill, God gave his son. And when the knife was about to come down this time, the angel of the Lord did not stop the knife. And he sacrificed his son. So past, present, future sins can be forgiven and there can be reconciliation with God and man. And then Robbie said, I looked at him and I said this, until we receive the son that God himself has offered, you and I will keep offering our sons and daughters on the battlefields of this world for land and power. And Sheikh just began to weep and kissed him on both sides of his face. 
Dr. Zacharias, you're a good man. He's more than a good man, folks. That is the gospel truth, the only hope we have. And when we can enunciate this in a way that the next generation can understand, they will be compelled and they will be drawn in to our Savior. I've just scratched the surface. ICOM 2020 is going to go down deep. And I really encourage you. Dr. Ravi Zacharias, that we were able to film some before he died, Charlie Delaney, and Dr. Ajay Law will be speaking going into the depths of the cross. And I really encourage you young people, you're good with the computers, go online, watch the virtual reality. It will change your life. Father, thank you for a great church does a great work in the city of Indianapolis. Thank you for its heritage here, its history of being a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. And I pray you would continue to bless it and expand her territory in Christ's name. Amen.